So today we are in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. We're going to pray and then we'll begin. So Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Uh, We pray now, Lord, as we continue to worship you um, through the reading of the word, that you would guide us, that you would direct us, Father, that you would uh, lead us in um, your scripture. Father, we ask that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of this passage, um, Lord, that you would um, soften our hearts, Lord. May we uh, be prepared, Lord, to take communion today. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this word. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity uh, that we have uh, to study your word. Um, Lord, we ask that you would guide us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is one of those passages um, that for me in my own life, in my walking uh, with Christ, I I believe that I became a Christian somewhere around 1996. Um, It's been about 19 years. Um, This is one of those passages that I think over the years has been a, 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 a deep passage that has continually sort of Um, convicted me, has uh, nudged me in my relationship with Christ, because at the heart of this passage, um, God is telling us that our relationships with other people affect how God receives our worship. And so he's encouraging us uh, to make peace um, with the people that we are close to um, in order to have our worship received by him. Um, It's deeply convicting if we really listen to what Jesus is saying here. Uh, As we begin uh, in verse 21, we see this phrase, you have heard that it was said. This phrase is going to appear six times in this chapter. Um, Today we're dealing with murder. Uh, The next one is adultery and then divorce, swearing, retaliation, and then the law of love. As Jesus brings these up, he'll say, you've heard it said, and then nearby there'll be sort of the counterbalance of the point, but I say to you, and and what he's doing is he's explaining that this was the command, this is the command, this is what the Old Testament says in the law, you've heard it said by teachers um, expounding upon the law that it means this. 
but, but I'm going to tell you the heart behind the law so that you would have a, a greater understanding of that which God has given to us. Um, Jesus was in essence saying, you were taught this way, but I'm going to tell you what it really means. And so today we look at the first one, which is murder. He says, you have heard it said, or you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And so this is Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It's the sixth commandment, um, thou shall not murder. Uh, this is a pretty good one. Like I, I appreciate that we live in a society, in a culture where you can't just walk down the street and be murdered without there being repercussions. Um, that there are investigators, there's law enforcement um, that will go out of their way, sometimes years, to enforce justice on those who have committed murder. Um, it's not that way in every culture. But we look at this one, and it's, it's, a, it's a pretty simple command to follow. The, I have not had a problem obeying the six commandments, thou shalt not murder. It's been an easy box for me uh, to check in my life. Um, I do want to make a side note here, is that murder is distinct from justifiable killing. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time here. I want to quickly sort of cover some points on this. In my notes, I have, Gunner, don't get distracted. Like, don't get distracted on this point. Um, but there is a difference between murder and killing. If you would go back uh, to Genesis, to the very fo- first book of the Bible, um, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. And in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, this is where we see the origin of capital punishment, where it's instituted. Uh, the flood had happened. The flood rescinded. Noah's getting off of the boat, and God gives a commandment uh, to Noah in 9.6, and he says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in For in the image of God, he made man. And so this commandment, there had already been a murder committed. Um, God says that because man is distinct from the rest of creation, that when man was created, he was made in God's image. So if somebody murders another human being uh, out of respect for mankind, uh, the punishment that will be inflicted on the person that murdered that individual is that their life uh, will be taken. Um, if we continue, if you work your way towards uh, the back, the next couple books over, we'll come to Genesis, Exodus, the next book over. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, if you'll go there, it is where we read, following this command, we read the sixth commandment. And here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it says, you shall not murder. Um, so we, we see capital punishment. Um, instituted, then we see thou shalt not murder. There is a distinction between the two. Um, We think of the Ten Commandments, but really the commandments in the Old Testament, there's 613 commandments that that go from these moral laws to one of the commandments is, you know, that every soldier shall be provided with a shovel for um, when they're out in the field. Um, So they're all sort of different commandments. The sixth commandment says, thou shalt not murder. But if we follow down a couple pages here and you go to chapter 21 
after this command, we'll see a, a case where capital punishment is still instituted and is distinct um, from the command that thou shalt not murder. In verse 22 of 21, the picture is painted. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judge judges decide. So this is the story. There's two men. They're in a fight. They're rolling around. They're wrestling. There is a woman who is pregnant nearby. They somehow bump into her or she gets in the midst of the scuffle to where she's hurt. She could even go into delivery. Um, or, or And in the process, both the baby and the wife are ultimately okay. They're the baby and the mom. They're ultimately okay. In this situation, the law says that the husband can demand some retribution from the party that created um, this injury, even though everybody's okay. But the husband, he might be a little upset. So whatever punishment or compensation that he wants for this instance, it has to be sort of cleared through the judges. That The judges have to say, well, the guy's being unreasonable. This this is not a just punishment. This is more reasonable. Or what the guy's asking, this is reasonable. And you need to pay this guy um, for what you've done. Now in verse 23, the story turns and it goes the other way. But if there is further injury, you shall appoint as penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, Wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So he says, now if these guys in their fight bump into this pregnant lady, she goes into labor early, the baby dies. There's a life for a life. That capital punishment will be instituted on this individual who causes death. If you continue down to chapter 22, and in verse 22, verse 1, it says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it and sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. So right away, the law says, if a guy is caught and he steals something from you, you have to pay him back like fivefold. Uh, I'm still a little bitter. For those of you who remember, about three years ago, I had my weed whacker stolen out of my front yard. And today, if a guy gets busted for stealing a weed whacker or whatever, it's like he goes and he pays his fine to the court and the person who's victimized doesn't get anything back. If they ever find that guy, according to the Bible, I think I should have five weed whackers given to me as, <laughs> as payback. I, I do acknowledge I'm still harboring some ill feelings about this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. From the theft, it continues in verse 2. It says, if the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies. There will be no blood guiltiness on his account. So the law, this is after, after the command, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Then already there's a number of cases and there's more that follow that, that, that if a person is killed justifiably, there's no blood guiltiness on the individual. A person breaks into your house and in the process, the family's protecting itself, kills the person. God says the person who killed him, they're innocent. This is, that is not murder. 
And so I'll move on because I've already run out of time for what I said I would allow myself. The main point here is that it's important for us as Christians to see that there is a distinction between murder and killing. Now, Jesus is addressing murder, uh, the taking of life without just without biblical justification. And he says, you've you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. So if a person murders somebody, that person's going to go before the court, the court of the time, the jury was composed of 23 individuals. They would stand trial. The court would basically say uh, guilty or innocent, and this is what's due them. It's pretty easy. When I'm looking at the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, I can check that box. I can move on. I can feel pretty good about myself. But Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So now he just ratches it up. The, the, the word court here, it's the, it's the same concept of the court. You're, you're, you're guilty for murder. You go before the court. You're held liable. And Jesus says, I say to you, if you're angry in your heart against your brother, and what brothers don't get angry with each other? You'll be guilty before the court. And I encourage you, like, let that settle in about anger. And while you're marinating on that thought, the Apostle John, who is sitting here at the Sermon of the Mount, later in 1 John uh, 3.15, he writes, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So suddenly my comfort of checking off this box, if I'm not a murderer, suddenly Jesus says, if you have hate in your heart, you're guilty. It's sobering. He then continues and he says, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing. And what brother hasn't said that to his brother? <laughs> you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Now Jesus ratches up the punishment. Now the Supreme Court then becomes the word for Sanhedrin, which was the court of this, the 70 officials governing the land of Israel, not the Romans, but the Jewish law. Now he says, if you say good for nothing, you're guilty before the Sanhedrin. And whoever says you fool, which is the word that we get moron from, which means uh, empty headed or empty minded, basically calling you an idiot is kind of the, the modern day equivalence. And whoever says you fool, this great derogatory statement towards an individual, you shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The word is Gehenna which is the word in southern Jerusalem where all of the trash was brought to and they burned the trash and the fire was this ongoing burn, continually going. And ultimately this place of Gehenna became sort of the symbol or the picture for what hell was. And so Jesus says, if you call your brother a fool, that's good enough for you to go to the fiery hell. And, and, and Jesus suddenly, if you were comfortable with thinking that you are obeying the the sixth commandment now dealing with hate or anger i should say anger within your heart towards your brother which leads to things that you say uh, to another individual i think this is broader than just your your biological brother this is uh, people that you're in relationships with he suddenly says 
that anger ultimately is murder. And I can't help but to think of the story of the first murder that happened in the Bible. Um, I should have had you hold your place in Genesis chapter, um, but if you could go with me to Genesis chapter 4 to look at the story in Genesis. So as Jesus is speaking about anger for your brother and calling you the one who has hate for their brother or anger for their brother in their heart, they're equivalent to being a murderer. You can't help but to remember the story found in Genesis chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. And the story is Cain and Abel. We know this story. And in verse 4, we read, Abel on his part brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? So here Cain sees his brother's offering was acceptable to the Lord. As Abel makes his offering, he did it in a way that the Lord did not honor or care about. He, he didn't abide with the, the, the instructions that I believe were clear to him that God wanted him to do. And so as God sort of uh, rejected his offering, it says that he became very angry. That uh, this picture, I think, of his face bright red and just anger fuming, nostrils flaring. And then the Lord comes to him. He says, hey, what's going on with you? Why are you so angry? Why is your countenance fallen? Verse 7, if you do well, will your countenance not be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And it's desirous for you, but you must master it. And God talking to Abel or Cain sees this anger fuming within him. And he says, you've got to control this. And as a parent, I think with children, when they have a temper tantrum, it's so critical for us as parents or even as grandparents to to help our children not to run away with their anger, that we need to help them get a hold of their flesh because allowing anger to grow only leads to bad things. And God says, you must master it. You must get over it. In verse 8, we read, Then Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. And so we see the first murder is born out of anger of heart. Uh, This week, I've been meaning all week to run down to the police department to go find the the homicide investigators, but I just, I didn't get around to it. But I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain that a huge portion of murders, when they start looking for what was the, the motive behind the crime, uh, there's a bunch of different faces of anger from within, but a lot of murders boil down to anger in the heart that leads to this action of taking another human's life. And so as we come back, to what Jesus is painting this picture. You've heard it said, you shall not commit murder, and if you do, you'll be liable for the court. But I say to you, and he paints this picture of the the cancer of anger within your heart towards others and how devastating it can be. And if you let it brew, it's going to lead towards derogatory statements and actions and, and ultimately 
will lead to murder. So he wants it to be dealt with early on. And as we come to verse 23, we see this therefore, and the therefore is huge. This therefore represents Jesus has laid out the problem because we all have dealt with anger. We all have had friction in relationships. If you're human, we're hanging out with a bunch of sinners. You're a sinner. And over the course of your life, you will have friction with other individuals. And so this therefore is Jesus is going to say, well, how do we handle it? How does this anger affect us? What, what actions should we take? And he says, therefore, if you are presenting your offerings at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come present your offering. Now we read this and I think in our mind it's so easy for us to, to get the picture of, of, of coming to church on Sundays. But Jesus is speaking to a bunch of individuals that are 80 miles from Jerusalem that this is up in the Galilee region. And he talks about presenting the altar, which this, this picture, this would be equivalent, let's call it, let's call the guy Joseph. And Joseph is a fisherman up in uh, Galilee. Um, twice a year, maybe, he would make it down to Jerusalem to make an offering. Uh, months before he would make this journey of 80 miles, he would have to get his, his household in order. He'd have to make sure that his house was taken care of, all of his things were okay, get his family together, save money, make this journey 80 miles with the, the correct animals. He would descend upon Jerusalem when there's thousands upon thousands of people coming to the temple to make their offering. He then would have to wait in line for hours, if not days, to make it to the place where he could get to the priest so that his animal could be sacrificed upon the altar. And Jesus is saying, you've made this whole journey. You've been in line for who knows how long. You're finally at the front of the line. You're about to present your offering to the priest. And then you remember that your brother has something against you. Now, to be honest with you, if you'd asked me two weeks ago, how did this play out? In my mind, I've always, I've always sort of associated with this because of my own heart. There's enough, like, I've had enough conflict with people that I have, like, I've just got to, naturally, I thought it was like, you had anger for another individual. You remember, like, you've got this bone to pick with this individual. You need to go reconcile this. But when you think about it, what it said, not when you think about it, what it, what it says is you're there at the altar and you remember that, you know, if you're Joseph, then old Jacob over here, Jacob's got a bone to pick with you. It doesn't even say that, it doesn't even say that you're wrong. It says that this individual has a problem with you. He has something against you. And then Jesus says what you need to do is, to leave your offering there, to travel back the 80 miles, find this individual, have some reconciliation, and then make, it way, make your way back to make the, the offering. Most people don't think that Jesus is speaking in a literal sense here. He's making a point about how much God cares about peacemaking within relationships. And if you think about this, Go back to verse 9 of chapter 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. 
And so in that beatitude, this isn't describing an individual who's just Switzerland not getting into conflict. The picture is an individual who is actively pursuing making peace with individuals around them, helping for there to be peace. And in this action, I believe that you're most like God and that it says, you shall be called sons of God, that God is the greatest peacemaker of all, that Christ came so that we could have peace with him. Christ, after his coming, then gave Christians this ministry of reconciliation. Jesus' point is that it's far more important to be reconciled to your brother than to fulfill external duties of worship. Kent Hughes says it's, it's natural to try to make up for our integrity with ceremony. Grant Osborne says reconciliation is priority over worship and kingdom community. Jesus is letting us know that as his followers more important than our ceremonial duty that we're taking communion, which is probably as close as we can come to, to our understanding of going before the altar. This is when we reflect on the broken body of Christ, that we evaluate our lives, that we confess, we sort of um, restart with God, or I don't know if restart's a good word, but we, we sort of evaluate and say, Lord, here I am. And he says that if you want to be in communion with me, if you want this worship, you need to stop what you're doing and go reconcile and bring peace to this relationship. And I think that in this section, Jesus is unpacking for us this this beatitude of blessed are the peacemakers. And when I reflect on this passage, I don't think I'm unusual um, but as a human, and we're all humans here, we, we all at some point of our lives have had conflict with other individuals, amen? It's difficult. People are difficult. I'm difficult. You put that combination together, it's only a matter of time before you're in conflict. My life as a Christian, when I came to Christ, before I was a Christian, I don't, I don't remember having a whole lot of conflict. And suddenly, when I became a Christian, my the the direction of my life suddenly rubbed against people I knew and family and friends and 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 how how does this work out and I want to be at peace but I also don't want to compromise the direction of my life and I've wrestled through this like over the last almost 20 years of how do I go about making peace and then this passage of Like, it's not even necessarily that I have anger against this person, but they have something against me that I'm supposed to be sensitive to other people's feelings towards me that I want to care about maintaining uh, this reconciliation or peace between myself and others. This can be a very difficult process for us. And I don't think that the Bible um, fills it with platitudes and Christianese just simple answers. And so as I've been reflecting on this, I think that there's a couple guiding posts that that how do we go about this? How do we go about being peacemakers? How do we, what do we need to know? How do we function in bringing peace? There's a ton of passages of the New Testament and I'm only going to focus on two. I think that there's two points. If you would go with me to Ephesians chapter four, 
And in Ephesians chapter 4, I think that the first point that we need to understand in this whole idea of bringing reconciliation and bringing peace to relationships where there's tensions, I think the first thing we need to understand is that God desires us to be peacemakers. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25, we're commanded, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are not members, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. And so right away we see in Paul's command, he quotes from the Old Testament, that there is a place for righteous anger. It doesn't say like, hey, never be angry. There's not, uh, that you have to go through life. There is this warning that, that as you get angry, and let's just assume it's a righteous anger, that your anger is in line with God's, desire we see that jesus got angry we see it at the temple when people were taking advantage of people he says in your anger do not sin and even i would suggest that as we have righteous anger in that righteous anger it opens the door of an opportunity for satan to get the handhold in your life that can get you to sin i think this is a beautiful passage as it deals with marriage, family members, uh, friends. Be angry, but don't sin. And the idea, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I don't think that this is a, a wooden expression or a literal expression. Like you get in a fight two minutes before the sun sets. And it's like, oh great, we only have two minutes to resolve things. Let's, let's get going. So you say, okay, we wait to start our arguments after sunset. So we have the most amount of time. <laughs> To resolve things. I, I don't think it's wooden like this. I, I think that the idea is, is that resolve your issues quickly. If you have anger, deal with them. Don't let them fester. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into marital counseling and I'm, a, I'm not normally most counseling I can do a little bit of. And then it's like, hey, we need to refer you to somebody else. But I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with a couple that says, hey, we need to talk. Um, we're, we're having anger. It's like, okay, what's going on? My wife says, you know, the husband 17 years ago did not take out the trash. I like, how, wait, wait, what, wait, what? 17 years ago, he didn't take out the trash. Or he took out the trash and he didn't put the bag back in. And there's some anger that goes back 17 years and that's just the beginning and there's all of this stuff. It's like you have 17 years of festering over something as stupid as the trash? And the trash is a extreme situation like this is not but the idea is if you if you're angry if you're there don't let it fester don't let it build don't let it develop deal with it like deal with it let it heal he he continues um he who steals must steal no longer but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. And this is the, where I'm getting to. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as Christ, just as God in Christ 
also has forgiven you. And so our, our premise is, how should we forgive? Well, have you been forgiven? If you're a Christian, you've received the forgiveness of God. You've received his mercy. You've received much. And so that's the measure in which we should be forgiving of other people. And so if you're in a relationship or you have a, a relationship that's gone south and there's been tension, in my life, dealing with difficult relationships as God has been working on me in this area, the first driving point that has helped me sort of work towards reconciliation, even if it's taken a decade to do, was in my mind and deep in my heart understanding that what God desires of me is to be a peacemaker, to bring reconciliation, to be forgiving. And it's not always, it's not always possible. Some people are just difficult. It's like, it's the reality. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, I think is where we get the second point. The first point is that God desires us to be forgiving. He desires us to work towards reconciliation with other individuals. And the second point is found in verse 18 of Romans chapter 12, which says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So you're not going to be able necessarily to make peace with every single individual in your life. But what God wants from us is that we at least put the ball into their court. So if there's tension with an individual, if somebody has something against you, that you before God can say, I've done absolutely everything I can do. I've extended forgiveness. I've, I've tried to, to reconcile. They're still got this chip on their shoulder about me. But bef- before God with a clear conscience, I can say that ev- I've done everything in order that, that I can do to bring peace. And I think that that's what God wants. And not ever, it's not always possible that, that peace is established. Back to Matthew. So Jesus says, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering. Leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come present your offering. He continues and says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge over to the officer, and you be thrown in prison. Therefore, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid every last cent. So the picture here is you, you now have a legal dispute, a legal claim, where you're the one who's sort of pressing charges against an individual. He says, as you're walking to the court, don't let it get all the way to the court. See if you can reconcile it on your own. See if you can mend your differences there. Because if you're an exacting person and you want every last cent back, what could happen to you is you go before the court. Next thing you know, the judge files, like, he lands against you and you as the one who's complaining ends up going to the bailiff and then the bailiff takes you to prison and every last penny will be taken out of you. And with this one, I think that Jesus is, is encouraging us to, to let our guard down, to recognize what God has done for us. We'll eventually come to this story in Matthew 18. And in Matthew 18, Peter asked Jesus, how often do we have to forgive an individual? And he says, many times, basically infinite. 
And then he tells this parable of this man who was relieved uh, 10,000 talents by his employer. Now, now one talent, from my footnotes in my Bible, I've never operated in talents, but from my quick study here is that one talent is equivalent to 15 years of basically an average day laborer's wages. So one talent equals 15 years of wages. The guy was relieved of 10,000 talents. I went to public school, so the math, I know there's a lot of zeros, I should be able to do it, but it's a lot. Many, many, many years. 10,000 times 15 is how many years? Is 150,000? Is that right? Am I close? No, nobody's checking me out, but it's a lot. A lot of years. The guy relieves him of this debt. The guy who then has his debt relieved, he's walking down the street and he sees his buddy who owes him a hundred denarii. Now, one denarii was equivalent to one day's wage. So he's just been relieved thousands upon thousands of years of debt. He sees his buddy who owes him basically three months worth of, of wages. And he grabs him by the neck and he says, you pay me back every last cent. And he's choking him out. He's, he's making this big scene. A friend sees what happens. He goes to the employer and you just relieve this guy of 150,000, whatever, whatever it is, 100 denarii or 10,000 talents, which is years upon years upon years. And he sees his buddy who owes him five bucks. And he's choking him out. And the guy, tell, Jesus tells the story that the guy goes there and basically says, you owe me every last debt. You're going to pay it back with an exacting because you were not gracious to this person. It's going to unfold on you in a terrible way. It reminds me of a ride along I was on. Uh, a few years ago, I was on this ride along and the call came out that somebody had been assaulted and they knew the individual who had assaulted them and they wanted to press charges. So I'm like, ooh, this is an interesting one. And so we were on the road. We were on El Norte to the north. We turned up one of those streets, and there's this guy walking down the street, and it was dark. We're like, hey, um, we were responding to a call. Did you hear anything? He's like, yeah, the guy was slurring. He had been drinking, but he wasn't slurring because he'd been drinking. He'd been slurring because he was missing a front tooth. And he's like, I was assaulted. I called 911. I had my tooth knocked out, and I want to press charges, and I want, to, I want these guys to get punished. And so we're like, okay, well, where did this happen? Hop in the backseat of the car. We'll, take, we'll go over a couple blocks over. We get there. The, the guy's placed with another officer. We go to the, the house. And we're like, hey, there's a guy saying that you guys assaulted him. He's like, this guy's drunk. He's been coming over our house. He's been trying to break in. We knew him from long ago. We've been asking him to leave, asking him to leave, asking him to leave. He forcefully was trying to break himself in. And, and defending myself, I punched him. I didn't know his tooth got knocked out, but I did punch him. But I don't want any trouble. I just want the guy to leave. And so then the officer goes to this guy and he's like, hey, you know, from everything that they're saying is that you're the one who is at fault here. That in their legal right, they were protecting themselves. And the guy's like, well, I, I got my tooth knocked out. And the cop's like, hey, that's a really bad deal. And, and the family that did, they're like, we don't want to press charges. We just want him to go away. And the officer's looking at me. He's like, I don't want to press charge. I don't want to haul this guy in. He got his tooth knocked out. That's like justice enough. Like, let's just let him go. 
And as the officer is trying to let him go, this guy is like starting to now fight with the officer saying, I want justice, I want justice. These guys knocked out my tooth. This isn't right. And then the end of the story, guess who ends up getting arrested? The guy who called 911 with the tooth got knocked out. He, and, and I think this is kind of the picture that Jesus is saying, you don't, like, you've been forgiven so much. My grace has been abundant upon you. Like, I've been so merciful. In your interactions with other people, be the same way. And if you want to deal with the scales of justice, and you're going to oppress this, even though you've been dealt with so graciously, it might not go your way. So there's this, there's this warning, I think, that Jesus is making so that we would ultimately be people who are forgiving. As we end, we're going to take communion. And the most important point is, what have you done with Jesus? When we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's, God is not calling us to, to, to a bunch of religion that we would do all of these rules so that we could earn our righteousness. That's not at all his point. Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's going to make the ultimate sacrifice so that we could be reconciled with God, that Jesus, his mission was to bring peace between humanity and God. All we do is respond. And so if you haven't responded to the gospel that Jesus died for you, that is the most important thing that you can do. And for those of us who have responded to the gospel, who have received Christ as Savior, as we come and we take communion, Ephesians 4.32 is the thing that keeps coming to my mind. As you have been forgiven, forgive one another. And what is communion? There's crackers here and there's juice. And it's symbolic of Jesus' broken body and his blood that was shed for our sins. That's how much we've been forgiven. That's how we are to forgive. Um, As we come to communion, it's a time for us to confess, to bow before God. So I would encourage you before you take communion to just sit in silence and say, Lord, is there anger that's built up in me? Is there hatred within my heart for other people? Lord, I want to confess it. And his word tells us that he's faithful, that he will, um, as we confess our sins, he will restore us. He will bring his righteousness to us. And then finally, as we take communion, we're told that as often as we take this, we're to proclaim the Lord's death. With Easter, um, just right around the corner, um, as we take communion, it's a good time to just to sit and pray and say, Lord, who is it that I know that doesn't know you? Who can I invite to church on Easter. So we're going to close. We're going to sing a couple songs. Um, I'd encourage you just to, when you're ready to come up and receive the elements and you can take them at your seat. Um, Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you are a God of grace and mercy. Lord, we thank you that you um, have made a way that we could have peace with you. We thank you, Lord, that you Uh, have paid for our sins, that you've brought peace to us. And Lord, we, as we come to take communion, Lord, as we reflect on this passage, Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, that you would show us anger that we have in our hearts. I pray that you would show us any sort of bitterness, any sort of tension that we have in relationships around us. Father, that we would confess it, Lord. I pray that you would give us courage to um, to go out of our way, Lord, to 
to, to mend these relationships, to bring reconciliation, Lord. We desire to be pleasing to you. Father, as we take this communion, I pray that you would help us to um, see um, that we would have people in our lives, Lord, that we could invite to church, that we could share the gospel with, um, Lord, that we could share the good news. Lord, we're thankful for the work that you've done in our hearts and our lives. We thank you, Lord, for being so good to us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.